All right, welcome to uh, the Trade Geek Podcast. I have uh, a friend of mine on today, and we're taking a departure from most of our guests who are learned in the dark arts of trade compliance. And we are instead uh, blessed to have Will Niblo, who is a partner in the firm that I work for, Crow, and he and his practice focus on matters of the supply chain, the greater supply chain. So just, I'm going to riff for a second, Will. It's kind of how this goes, man. I'm sorry, but no problem. When I first started in this business, you know, the supply chain was really getting its due as being important, but it's expanded into so much more than just the box moving from a warehouse to another warehouse. And Will and his team focus on all of the, uh, the magical things that happen in the greater term of the supply chain, and they help companies to, to manage that. I'll let him talk about it more. Will was instrumental in helping me to um, move myself and my, my team to Crow here, and he has been uh, positively wonderful in helping me to gain access to clients and to understand the complexities of moving to a new firm, which is never easy for anyone. So he's been a great friend. And aside from all of that, he has one of the most luxurious beards you will ever <laughs> see. Um, and because he always has a jacket on, you wouldn't know this. He's jacked. Like, Will is, is jacked. I don't know if it's Wisterall or just a lot of, of time in the gym, but he is, um, he is incredibly large for a, um, a relatively diminutive man. So I have a number of nicknames for him. So he is... Um, uh, Big Willie Nibs, that's one. Um, I also call him, um, uh, what was, um, oh, tea, teapot, or no, tea, uh, teacup, teacup Bryce Harper, because he also <laughs> has the goofy haircut along with the beard. More jacked um, Edelman, because he looks a lot like Julian Edelman, but he's bigger in my opinion. And also, if you've ever seen The Year Without a Santa Claus, he looks like young Santa Claus. He's not a ginger, so he doesn't have, he doesn't have red hair. I mean, it's reddish. It's more, would you say it's more on the brown side, Will? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with brown. There's no, no ginger going on. Yeah, but he, he could easily be um, a Hollywood-casted young, young Santa Claus if he wanted to. He definitely has that look. That is the strongest intro. You're so kind. Hey, it's, it's true, you know. Um, so, so thank you for joining us today, um, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. So if you had to explain in an elevator pitch precisely what it is that you and your band of misfit toys do, what would you say that it is? Yeah, we like to explain it in a way that, uh, you know, any normal human could understand if you were sitting next to them at a bar. Uh, so our focus is purely on supply chain and our value prop is super straightforward. We are all about helping our clients uh, make more money put more money to the bottom line. And we do that through operational and supply chain strategies. So there's three super simple things we do. Uh, first and foremost, we look at your spend, we identify areas of opportunity, and we help you then negotiate with the suppliers you have. So that involves you know, everything from you know, strategic sourcing to uh, you know, leverage bidding to, you know, hey, we need this thing and we don't know who does it. We need to find that supplier and make sure we align with the best one. So that consumes you know, 30, 40% of our time. The next thing we do is a lot of freight optimization. So not just 
uh, freight rates. And then we focus on rates and carrier selection and mode optimization, but we also look at uh, recovery. Uh, are we cubing out? Are we managing all of the cost levers, route optimization? Uh, how's our team structured? How do we work with operations? We spend a lot of time uh, working with our clients on freight because it tends to be a bit of an afterthought, you know, as far as our clients are concerned, because you know, everyone's so excited that they made something and that they're going to ship it, that people just kind of forget about freight, as an example. The other thing that we focus on a lot is transforming people's teams. So while supply chain and, and, and procurement and freight and these other things have elevated in terms of their status within the organization, it's also pretty fair to say that it's an elevation from basically being ignored as being important to the business. So they're kind of in the, the mid rank of what is important and strategic, and they're always understaffed. Manufacturers run lean. So they're not always you know, the most robust teams. They tend to be very much focused on the day-to-day, -day, making sure that stuff gets out the door and parts come in the door. Uh, and so we work really hard with those teams uh, to help get them you know, aligned with the more strategic side of the business uh, adding more value within the larger organization, et cetera. I would say from a, uh, uh, from a differentiation standpoint, uh, where we shine relative to others that uh, we, we've worked with, is we have a very deep understanding of how operations work. In fact, our sister practice, the Performance Improvement Group, focuses on nothing but operational improvement within the four walls of an operation. So by understanding the third-party supplier piece, freight optimization, team development, and then also having a sister practice that focuses on, you know, improving how we make widgets and how we manage process, it's just a, uh, it's a super uh, powerful solution for, you know, middle market to upper middle market manufacturers that are trying to deliver, you know, bottom line value through, you know, kind of cost strategies. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I often see with, with the people that I work with that it just sort of happens, right? They, it's like you said, they're so excited about making something that eventually all of these decisions compile on themselves. And before you know it, they've got the supply chain, but there wasn't a lot of thought that went into building it. Or the thought that went into building it is a result of a lot of putting out fires and dealing with things as they happen. So yeah. I, I don't want to make it sound like that there wasn't any intelligence that was put into it or wisdom, but they're just dealing with the results of a lot of having to deal with drama along the way. No, I think, I think that's spot on, right? So we, we jokingly say and, and seriously say when we do our assessment uh, that it's, it's like the search for aliens. We're looking for signs of intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, you know, if you kind of look at uh, where there's evidence of something of, let's call it intelligent design or something that is strategic, it's obvious, right? It's, we pick this supplier or we aligned with this supply chain or we move freight in this way. And then the client will state a lot of intentional reasons. Uh, we did this robust process. Uh, we looked at dozens of people. We negotiated this deal. This is how it works. And you can kind of stand back and reflect on it and go, okay, this is something that someone spent time on. Uh, but, but the vast majority of activity within the business is, is not designed that way especially in kind of middle market. It's really more about how the business grew up. And what's, what's also interesting is, is that, you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of the, 
the amount of deal activity and acquisition and consolidation is also very real, right? And especially with our clients. And so sometimes it's not a knock on, you know, what you grew up with. It's just a matter of the business has evolved and we've added more business lines. And so now we have a more complex supply chain and we have more redundancy and we have more overlap. And so for that reason, you know, whoever takes a step back, kind of looks at it as a whole and says, okay, we need to make some adjustments. I mean, we're, we're working with a client right now. Uh, they're actually uh, in, in Michigan. And about uh, two or three years ago, they moved a lot of their manufacturing down to, you know, kind of the Kentucky area. Uh, when they did that, you know, they did a lot of things in terms of operations and optimizing and getting the workforce aligned and moving management and all these other things. But one of the last things that they've addressed is where their suppliers are, specifically like outside processing, like metal processing as an example, hard coat, heat treat, et cetera. So the net of that is, you know, we're three years down the line. We're primarily manufacturing in Kentucky, but we have a supply chain that is shipping parts to Michigan and then bringing them back to Kentucky to be processed. And so, you know, someone would have to focus on that for a good long time to straighten that out. And so that, you know, those are the types of things we see. And it's, it's very common because, you know, the most precious resource for our clients is time. And there's just not a lot of people that have time to sit there and focus on straightening that out. Yeah. I, you know, you always, you always ask people, why are you doing it this way? And they, they, they begin to answer the question and it becomes a really uncomfortable conversation a lot of times because either they don't know or they, they do know, but they don't want to make any, they don't want to throw anybody under a bus. And, and I'm not here to, we're not here to, uh, to judge anyone. I mean, I wasn't here when they were going through whatever they were going through. And it's not, it's not any indictment on their business. It's just, there could be a better way to do it. And why don't we talk about maybe doing it a different way? Yeah, that's a hundred percent right. So, so for us, you know, there's kind of three reasons our clients hire us. You know, the first is like, maybe we know something that they don't knowledge that's actually the least of reasons people hire us the latter two are the most common it's a resource constraint they they just need people like they know what the issues are they know the opportunities in fact a lot of times they just wear it on their sleeve they're like yeah that's that's screwed up i wish we did that better uh you know kind of they and them did that to us uh, they just need people and then the last one is consensus so getting a business especially a large one uh you know to kind of pick a direction takes a lot of energy and a lot of information and a lot of data and all those other things. And so, you know, if you can solve for, if you can take the ideas in from an organization, because people will be very candid about this stuff. I love it when my clients just go open book and talk about this stuff. Hey, that's screwed up. We want to fix that supply chain. Uh, that process there, it's been broken for years and it causes all these issues. Uh, this supplier never delivers and they run us out of material three or four times. We'd really like to switch, right? Mm -hmm. But they just don't have the bench strength or the ability to kind of convince the organization, uh, you know, on the way that they need to go to move the business forward. Uh, so yeah, it's never an indictment, uh, but it's incredibly uh, liberating once you actually get some folks on your team with you that are working on these very legitimate, tough problems, but awesome opportunities. Yeah. So why, why should a company hire us instead of just trying to suffer through it themselves? 
I mean, uh, the simple reason is by working with us, they make more money. So we're very much an ROI focused solution, right? You give me quarters, I give you dollars. That's what we do. So there's always an attractive return on our work. And frankly, if there isn't an attractive return, uh, then we're not, we're not gonna do the work. Uh, so that's kind of the, the simple answer. Uh, the more complex answer, but it's real, is because we make companies, we help companies perform better, right? We help companies' teams perform better. So once we leave, it's not a one-time shot in the arm. The idea is, is that there's some transformational aspects to it uh, where we help your team up their game and improve their performance over time, which, yeah. you know, I, I think is absolutely different than how we see other people work out there. You know, I think a lot of folks out there can help you deliver value as a one-time shot in the arm. It's not a knock. I mean, it's a good, it's a good deal. Uh, but we, we over-invest in our clients' management teams to make sure that uh, we help these things sustain. And I'll add something to that. I have a, a long-standing relationship with a former client. And when we were doing work for them on a regulatory compliance issue, we identified just shy of a million dollars a year of opportunity that we could do. And they were hesitant to do it for a lot of reasons, but mostly because of the price. And uh, every year, for years, I would go back to them. And I would say, you ready to do it yet? Oh, we got all these other things we want to work on. And this isn't the year. You know, we had an acquisition. We're changing SAP. We're bringing in the software. See other things we want to do. So I, I talked to them last night. I'm actually going to see them tomorrow before I fly home. And I said, I brought this up 12 years ago. Do you want me to bring up that math? So for the 250 grand I was proposing to do the work, you would have saved just shy of 12 million bucks. And I, I'm, I get it. I think one of the things that's about consulting and it's, it's hard to quantify it, but the speed with which we can bring a solution, I think there's, there's some, there's some utility to that. And it, it's hard to, it's hard to put it into numbers sometimes, sometimes it's not, but if you want it done quickly, we can get it done quickly and sometimes quicker than, than you ever could. Well, I mean, that, that's exactly the point, right? That's the resource piece. It's speed to value, right? I was in a meeting yesterday. We were, we were presenting out to, uh, an executive group after a five-week study and this particular company grew by acquisition and uh, their question to us was hey our cost of freight since this acquisition as a percent of sales has gone up dramatically and we don't really understand why and, and you know kind of what to do about it uh, and, and one of the things in their business was they frankly just have two fundamentally different ways of managing logistics now because by acquisition, one company did it in a decentralized manner and the other one did it in a centralized manner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a comment about, hey, maybe we should pick one way because we're trying to coordinate and manage national resources. Their other opportunity was on a strategic sourcing side, you know, on mode selection and freight and reduction of premium freight and all these other things. Every single time we talked about something in the meeting, the point was made, well, who's gonna do that? In fact, it kind of became a running joke through the meeting, you know, who's going to do that? Who's going to do that? But the sad short truth of it is, we're going to do that. We're going to do that with you uh, because you need the bench strength to get over this kind of near-term hurdle to get the value. And, you know, reluctantly, 
I mean, I know people don't want a bunch of consultants running around the business. I mean, we're not stupid. But, you know, if you don't, the alternative is that it just won't get done right. because you fall back into doing the work that you got to do every day to run your business. And so then you end up 10 years later with $12 million, not realized because you just didn't pull the trigger on it. Yeah. It's uh it's just a strange part of the world that we live in is, is we have to convince everybody there's a problem or they know there's a problem. So the problem has to be identified. And then we have to show that there's a solution that uh, is the best solution, that we're the best people to do the solution. And then we have to convince them that this is the time to do it and that uh, there's a price that it's worth doing it for and that the price that we propose is the right price. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we don't help ourselves in our profession, though, in terms of how we approach it sometimes. No, consulting is a strange and, and wonderful animal, man. Sometimes I was, it's approached uh, with, like, com combined, with, combined with blazers that just is a real turnoff to humans. And so, <laughs> you know, if you can't just be, you know what I mean, right? So if you can't just be, like, human and a regular person and in the game with the people that are doing the work, yeah. I mean, it's just, I mean, who wants to hire that guy? So we, we just... <laughs> we spend a lot of time focusing on uh, just being regular humans that are there to help. A lot of my life has been on contingency, right? If I don't save you money, I don't get paid. And of the people that I work with are, they, they like puzzles. And I mean that from the very, the very micro level to the very macro level. They like, they like Sudoku and very intricate, extremely difficult jigsaw puzzles. They like math. They like fixing things. So they're the kinds of people that will will buy an absolute just train wreck of a house and then a year from now flip it because they've done amazing things to it. They buy old beaten up cars. They're just, they're, they're the kinds of people that love to fix things. And I'm sure it's the same way on your side of it. We're, we're obsessed with efficiency. And when you, when you take those sorts of people, a lot of the times, um, what can turn people off in our world is an attitude of arrogance that comes from the ability to do it when other people can't. So what I love is when and I, I've watched you do this a number of times, because I, I know it's not just a show is when we go and visit people and it's clearly a collaborative effort. We're trying to do this together. I want to get this done together. I want to leave here and see you be able to do it yourself. You know, it's a teach a man how to fish sort of attitude rather than just hand it over to you. I think that makes everybody more. I think that's exactly right. I, I consider it an extreme luxury to have a job that is about working on and fixing tough problems. And basically the work is like construction. We get to come into a situation, focus on a tough problem, help get it addressed, and then walk away from that situation and go build another house. There's something just incredibly gratifying about that. I think that was my biggest frustration when I worked in industry is, is that, you know, when, when issues went unaddressed or when things were, you know, kind of went on for years, they felt very perpetual and the job felt very evergreen, right? It just felt like managing day to day. And uh, so even in, in my own business years ago in industry, uh, we had a group of folks come in and help us and just the satisfaction of, you know, getting things done and checking that box and moving on to the next thing uh, is very real. And we love to see uh, our clients through that process. Are you good at relaxing? No, uh, yeah. I'm terrible at relaxing for a lot of reasons, 
but honestly, I think it's anxiety that keeps me alive and yeah. has made me, uh, made me who I am as a professional. So I don't think I would take the trade off, but every once in a while I'll be sitting in my office and I'll see like, uh, somebody mowing the lawn and I kind of wonder which one of us got it right. Yeah. I read in this book one time that anxiety and fear is an old, uh, like it's in our DNA. It's what kept human beings alive. It's what stopped the bear from eating us. But it's yeah. true. It's like, hey, there's a cougar. Run. Yeah, Run. it's very yeah. primitive, but it's real. Yeah, this, it's okay to be a little afraid. I um, I got home this weekend. I was in New York for most of last week, and I, I got back home, and my my daughter was um, very. She had a very bad cold, so it was decided it was in everyone's best interest that she stayed at her mom's house this weekend. So I got home on a Friday night. I had nothing to do. So generally, when I'm home on a weekend, it is entertaining my daughter because I am Captain Fun. And <laughs> just, you know, coming up with various activities that will keep her just gleeful until I bring her back to her mother. I had nothing to do, man. I had nothing to do. So I looked around my apartment. I did, I did, all, I did all of my, my laundry. I, um, I cleaned my refrigerator. My cleaning lady had just come, so I, I didn't need to clean anything. I threw out a bunch of old, this is on Friday night, right? So this is from the time I got home at eight o'clock until I went to bed at about 1130. I threw out a bunch of old shoes. I, I picked up my closet, like, and then I went to bed and I was full of anxiety because I realized when I woke up on Saturday, I had two days ahead of me with nothing to accomplish. Yeah. That, I ended up ax throwing with my buddies. That is like, I, I think you know this because we talked a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, I was in, Korea with my brother last week who lives there and is a teacher there. Uh, and the amount of downtime we had is unsettling to me. Like, I don't like it. Uh, my body like rejects it. Uh, yeah. I don't know what to do with that time and space. So I fill it with activity. Yeah. And I like to have mine scheduled, which drives people crazy. <laughs> you know, I mean, Schedule no your downtime. Yeah. Like, okay, so we're going to go here for a while and relax. And then, uh, but after that, no, we're, we're going, we're getting right back in a cab and then we're going over here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> point of relaxation, man. You know, I'm the first person going to vacation with ever. I've never scheduled my downtime. Oh yeah. I'm absolutely okay. pathetic. I am. This is why it's best that I live in my, in my cement, um, my cement holding cell, 11 floors <laughs> above Manchester. Cause it's just, it's better. It's better that I'm locked away from the rest of humanity with that. Yeah. Uh, with Netflix and a bunch of guns, it's just better. It keeps everything in check. So there's a lot of young people who um, who listen to this and a lot of college students. And they always ask me how I ended up in this business. I'm going to ask you, if, if someone wanted to take the path, the righteous samurai path of becoming big willy nibs, how, how, would, how would they do it? How did you end up here, man? Uh, by accident. Uh, my, my career is a story of luck and timing. I, I, you know, so I get... The one thing that I guess uh, you got to give yourself credit for is when luck and timing come your way, uh, that you've at least developed yourself well enough professionally that you can take advantage of those opportunities. So luck and timing has been good to me. Uh, and uh, I've just been in a position professionally where I could take those risks and, and do those opportunities. So yeah, for example, like Crow, uh, I got introduced to Crow because I worked at a company that was doing a, uh, uh, an integration of two ERP systems. I knew that Crow had uh, 
a lot of serious game in helping companies on the implementation of ERP. So I reached out, which led to a conversation with someone who was uh, a guy named Doug Schrock, who leads our manufacturing and distribution practice. He was spinning up a group that was gonna offer additional advisory services to our clients. Performance improvement, M&A integration, IT advisory, and procurement strategic sourcing. And because of my background, oh, I'll start. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me now? Yep, because you're back. Yeah, and start the sourcing practice. But you know, if you kind of look at that, the only reason that uh, I got to Crow and and started this practice uh, with a lot of support from really great people here is because of a random phone call that I made one day uh, to find out how Crow could help me with ERP. So, you know, it's just, it's luck and timing. So you just got to put yourself uh, in a position professionally and personally where when those crazy things come your way, you can take advantage of it. Absolutely. You can post on Instagram all you want, kids. It's not going to get you a job with us. So so here's the last three questions we ask everybody. Um, And I believe I've asked you one of these or two of these before in the past. But uh, first... First car you ever had, how'd you get it, and what happened to it? So the first car I ever had was a blue Mercury Sable. Uh, I shared it with my sister. That's a handsome car, Will. It was was a car that saved Ford. There's no doubt. Uh, Who I ended up working for later. Anyway, it was a Mercury Sable. It had a sweet, plush vinyl interior that was blue. I shared it with my sister, but she didn't really use it at all. So it was kind of just my car. Let's see, how did it go down? It took, you know, typical teenager, right? It took me about a month to get into a car accident. I couldn't afford to. Literally, uh, and then just ran it into the ground. In fact, no, no, I realized that the Sable wasn't cool enough for me. And so I passed it on to my sister, literally, who was at school, because she could have a car now. And I saved up some money to go out and buy a cool car. So what do you think I got? Oh God, I'm terrified to ask. Was it a was it a Mustang? <laughs> no. It was a Mazda 626. That was your idea of a cool car. <laughs> wow. You are a nerd. <laughs> so so I saved up two grand and went and bought a Mazda. Wow. And that must the, have lasted a while. <laughs> it didn't. It lasted uh, two weeks. It blew a header. And then we had a fight with the guy who sold it to me. And he uh, then sold me an Audi 4000, which I drove for the next two years and then gave to my brother. The Audi 4000. Dude, that was a cool car. That is a cool car. Those are actually collector's items now. Get out. They are. They are. All right. right, Second question. Second question. First job you ever had that gave you a paycheck. Where was it and how much did you get paid? I was a dishwasher. I got my first job because I crashed a snowmobile and had to pay uh, to get it fixed. So I was 15 years old. I got a summer job at a diner called Big Al's Diner in Rockford, Michigan. And uh, my job was washing dishes. And I washed dishes for two weeks. And then uh, one day went out to the line to cook myself lunch. And the lady said, you know how to cook? And I said, yep. And then I was a line cook. So I was a line cook that summer. 
So working in a greasy spoon in July, super humid over a grill. Was there an actual Big Al? Uh, you know, so there was. Uh, and yeah, he was uh, a character. Let's say that. Wow, I would eat at a place called Big Al's. All right, last, last, uh, last question. If I could wave um, Crazy Uncle Pete's magic wand and give you any job ever, and, in, and logic does not apply here. So you could be like a center for the Pistons if you wanted, all right? Any job, what would that job be? Dream job. That's really messed up. So, so what I really like doing is uh, helping people out, but having a lot of spare time. Okay. So whatever job it is that involves helping people in a meaningful way, uh, but then also having a lot of time to socialize and consult, I would do that job. So picture some type of uh, not-for-profit that is focused on some meaningful cause that involves a lot of interaction with humans. Uh, and I'm, you know, in the field and dealing with, you know, kind of fundraising and these types of things that makes a difference in people's lives. Like I, I would do that job. Uh, and then selfishly, I would do that job two days a week because I would spend the rest of my time not working. Just hanging around. That's right. Working, working on chest and arms, apparently. <laughs> lots, lots of push-ups. That would be the deal. Well, Will, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I'm sure people are going to have a ton of questions. If they want to reach you, what's the best way? Phone. I'm a really simple person to get a hold of. You just dial me up. Should I say my phone number? Is that an easy thing? No, I think I'd give them an email address, buddy. Uh, so will w i l dot last name k n i b l o e at crow dot com. Shoot me an email. I'll hit you back, and we'll have a conversation. I feel like uh, every time we avoid an email in this world, an angel gets its wings. So yeah, prefer- well, every time you avoid obnoxious text messages from my five thousand listeners, <laughs> the angel gets its wings too. All right, man. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, hope you have an awesome day. I really appreciate it. And welcome to the firm. Thanks, man. Take care. See ya.